Well, again, thank you for um, your investment in those young people and for helping all that to happen. Um, all right, so First Peter, being different. Um, one of the, the great challenges of preaching through or studying through or reading through a book of the Bible is that sometimes you come across passages that are kind of difficult, that you have to wrestle with a bit, that if left to your own preferences, you might want to just sort of skip over them <laughs> or ignore them. Uh, and so this morning is one of those texts that um, it kind of offends almost every cultural sensibility of U.S. Americans. Uh, it uses words like submit and suffer. Uh, it talks about topics like slavery. Um, but as controversial as some of those things are, I can't help but think that uh, some of the concepts we're going to look at this morning and truths about Christianity are some of the most important that we can learn about and implement into our lives as American Christians. A lot of times when we come to hard passages in the Bible, especially when I'm working with young people, college students, uh, when you come to these difficult texts, uh, we kind of respond in one of two ways. Some of us use those difficult and confusing passages as a kind of excuse or reason to reject Jesus or to question Christianity. Basically, we say something like, I don't agree with this passage or that passage, what it's saying. And so clearly Christianity is regressive or backwards or narrow-minded or bigoted or, you know, whatever it is, and I don't want anything to do with it. So that's kind of one approach we take. Others of us take a different approach. We, we look at a passage like we're going to look at this morning, and we say, I just, I just don't agree with it. And so we adopt a much more maybe liberal reading of the text. We say, oh, that, that doesn't apply to us anymore. I mean, after all, we're living in the 21st century. You know, come on. That was just a cultural issue in Peter's day. We don't have to follow those instructions anymore. So this morning, though, we're going to try to approach it uh, in a third way. And this morning, I want us to kind of press into this text that we're going to read and to embrace it to wrestle with it, to, to dig deep with it, to figure out how this passage fits in to the bigger story of the Bible. I want us to hold on to the fact that the Bible gives us this incredible picture of a God who loves us, who created us, who pursues us, who became one of us in Jesus to die for us, who forgives us, who gives us new life, who's promised to recreate us in this world, and so we can't just throw all that away because of a difficult passage here or there. Instead, if we cling to the character of the God we know, and we cling to that bigger story, we'll find that maybe this difficult passage has more to say to us than we realize. Peter, like any New Testament epistle, Peter is writing to a specific people in a specific culture in a specific time, in a specific place, who are facing a specific situation, right? He's not writing a theology textbook. He's writing a, a pastoral letter to people who are going through something difficult. And so he tries to apply the truth that Jesus died and rose again and is alive. He tries to apply the gospel, the truth of God's kingdom breaking into our world, to this situation, to these Christians living in Turkey in the first century. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning as we look at this passage is, how would he apply those same truths to us today, to our lives, to our culture, 
to our world. And uh, I think we're going to find it's a lot less scary, the passage, and maybe can inspire us a lot more than we ever thought. So before we dive in, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you that um, you, you've communicated to us, that you've left us your word, um, and more importantly, you, you speak to us, and you um, re- revealed yourself in Jesus. And but as we look at this passage that Peter wrote that might be challenging and hard, Lord, help us to trust your character, the character of a God who revealed himself on a cross. And I pray that we would become like you as a result of it. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been looking at 1 Peter the last few weeks, one of the letters found in the New Testament. And of course, it's written by Peter, one of Jesus' earliest followers, one of his closest friends, and one of the leaders of the early church. And he's writing to first century Christians, as I've said, in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he addresses these Christians as exiles, as, as foreigners, as aliens. There's some debate about what Peter means by this, but most would agree that Peter is trying to say that these Christians, because of their faith, because they've been reborn into God's family, because they're being changed to live and look more and more like Jesus, they're starting to stand out a bit. And they're starting to stand out in a, bit that's, in a way that's a bit uncomfortable. So even though they're still living in the same cities and towns and homes and families that they've always lived in, They're no longer living like they used to live. And so they've turned away from drunkenness and orgies and pagan religions. They no longer worship a whole bunch of pagan gods. They now worship Jesus. Their primary loyalty is no longer to the emperor, but it's to King Jesus. And because of this, it's it's almost like they've become foreigners, strangers, exiles, aliens in their own land. They've become outcasts. And and Peter wants to encourage them. He wants to strengthen them. He wants them to know that even though they're being insulted, even though they're losing status and honor, even though they're being disowned even by their own families, and even though they will face increasing hostility and persecution and some even execution because of their faith, he wants to encourage them that they are now part of God's family. They're, They're his children. They have an eternal inheritance waiting for them. And they will be welcomed home one day to God's great eternal party. They're priests. They're a holy nation. They're the people of God. They're temples of the Holy Spirit. One person said, you know, we now have, we're like little receptacles, little containers of God's presence. God's presence now lives in them. And so, For us, if if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you need to hear this. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter what's been done to you, no matter who has hurt you, no matter what you've been called or labeled, no matter the the rejection you've faced or the abandonment that you've faced, you now have this incredible status and standing before God. You are his. You belong to him. And no one, no words, no actions, no humiliation, no pain can ever change that. 
you belong to God. And he loves you so much that not only did he die for you, but he now lives in you. His spirit dwells in you. You are now his home. And because of this, you can do what seems impossible. What the world thinks around us, what the world thinks is crazy. You can be different. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He writes, and this is from the message. He writes, friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. In other words, Peter is saying, you're, you're part of this culture. This is, this is where you live. You don't need to reject it in its entirety. But you do need to resist certain aspects of the culture. You're not called to impose or demand God's kingdom on society. You don't have to overthrow Rome or force your neighbors to adhere to your faith. Instead, win them over by being different. Don't impose the kingdom. Display the kingdom. Let me say that again. Don't impose the kingdom display the kingdom. In other words, we aren't going to fix Vermont <laughs> and turn it into the most religious state in America. Okay? We're not going to all of a sudden make Vermont some kind of Christian state by passing the right laws or getting enough political power or making sure we elect Christian politicians. But we can impact the lives of our neighbors and see God change the hearts of our neighbors and our culture by living out the kingdom in front of them. I explain this to my students in this way. UVM is one of the most uh, sexually liberal campuses you can think of. Anything goes. Literally, anything goes. There's this culture of hooking up. There's a culture of distorted sexuality. There is a culture where students are encouraged to experiment with alternative behaviors. There's a culture where women are regularly sexually assaulted. It's called rape culture. There's a culture where pornography is not only considered morally neutral, but even celebrated as a sign of empowerment and liberation. I tell my students, we're not going to change the culture, sexual culture of UVM, by reinstituting single-sex residence halls and curfews and bed checks like my parents went through when they were in college. We won't end rape culture by enforcing strict dress codes on men and women. Uh, we won't end addiction to pornography by requiring certain programs or filters on every student's laptop and phone. But when we begin to treat one another with dignity and respect... When we, when we refuse to see one another as just sexual fodder to meet our own physical needs, when we say no to hooking up, when we gently speak up or 
refuse to laugh at demeaning jokes and humor. When our, when our roommates see us living out lives of purity with our media usage. When, when we protect our sisters and brothers at parties rather than joining in with, with their binge drinking. I tell our students that when we come alongside victims of assault and insist that there's no place for self-blame, but rather we join them in pursuing justice. When our romantic relationships exemplify love by putting our partner's well-being first, by putting our partner's future and our partner's physical and emotional health first, when we exercise self-control and when we're men and women of our word, when we're faithful and committed to one another, maybe then, I tell my students, will win some over to God's kingdom, to his ethics, to his dreams and design and intentions for our sexuality. We don't have to legislate morality. Instead, we live it out with such integrity, with such beauty, that people are drawn to the kingdom. Peter writes this in verse 13. He says, Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. Respect the authorities, whatever their level. They are God's emissaries for keeping order. It is God's will that by doing good, you might cure the ignorance of the fools who think you're a danger to society. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking the rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. We live in a culture of fierce independence, right? I mean, we're Vermonters, right? We're a bit rebellious. We have this streak of independence in us. We don't like being told what to do, and we certainly don't like conforming, you know, keep Vermont weird, right? But Peter's instructions are just incredibly uncomfortable to us. He says, submit. Submit. He tells these early Christians to submit to authorities, to the government, to the systems in our culture that provide order and structure. Submit. On the one hand, this sounds awfully passive. Are we, are we simply supposed to roll over and do whatever the government or those in charge tell us to do? What if, what if the leaders who are making these laws or telling us to do these things are, are deeply anti-Christian? What if they're Policies and rules collide with kingdom ethics. Are we really supposed to just submit? But what I love here is Peter does something incredibly subversive. Peter is writing to a culture where the emperor was considered divine, where citizens were expected to worship the emperor. He's writing to a culture with extreme social and economic stratification. In other words, men and women, free people and slaves operated within strict castes and roles. But first of all, Peter writes a letter to churches and to Christians, a letter that would have been read to a gathering of men and women, slaves and free, Jew and Gentile, all sitting in one assembly. And he's writing to communities of faith whose, whose inclusivity was already revolutionary. All those same people, 
all those people in one room together hearing the letter. It would have been unheard of. Peter writes, submit to the government, yes. But he says, don't worship the emperor. He says, revere God alone. Only worship God. Only God is deserving of your devotion. No matter your status in the world as God's children, free or slave, you are slaves to God, to him and him alone. He says, don't look at people through the lens of your culture's priorities. Don't assign people value based on their wealth or their power. Treat all people with dignity. In other words, the slave is due the same respect as Nero. If you live this out, he says, you will change the culture. You will win people over to the kingdom. We live in a, a society, in a culture that's increasingly cynical, that's increasingly tribalistic, that's increasingly isolated from people we disagree with. When we see something in our world that we disagree with, right, we write a, a short social media post, we repost some demeaning and insulting meme on Facebook, right? Or we simply write people off and walk away from relationships when we disagree. But Peter is saying there's a, there's a better way. There's a better way. Rather than using our freedom to live out our differences like everyone else, Peter says there's a better way way devoted to God where we are slaves to him and his purposes. I bet if I were to ask you, and I'm not going to ask you, but if I were to ask you in this room how you felt about our government's immigration policies, there might be some disagreement. In our culture, though, when there's disagreement. We call people on this side of the aisle or that side of the issue names. We break off relationships with people. But Peter is saying, don't do that. Instead, love an immigrant. Welcome a refugee into the family of God. Become a community of faith that embraces the outsider. I tell my students, get to know an international student. Build a real and meaningful relationship with someone who is different than you. Learn to live this out in, in, in real relationships. And the policies and the laws and all this, the politics won't matter so much because in our lives we'll be demonstrating what the kingdom of God looks like. Last year, as many of you probably know, the protests erupted at UVM um, over issues of racial discrimination and, and bias that students of color feel like they experience at UVM. And, and no matter how you know, necessary or appropriate you thought some of those protests were, um, no matter how well some of us on campus felt like the administration did or didn't respond to the needs and demands of students, we can broaden it out no matter how you 
feel about police shootings or kneeling during the anthem or whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC or like me, unbiased news like NPR. Um, just kidding. <laughs> We can be a friend to someone who is different than us. I tell my students, don't just post something on social media. Live it out in day-to-day life with actual people. Justice is not some concept that just kind of like floats out there, right? <laughs> if we just had the right laws or policies or people in power, we'll achieve it. Justice begins with my heart, my attitude, and actual relationships. So if we want to see change, then we have to change the nature of our relationships. Peter then goes on to write one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to deal with. And tragically, it's been used by the church at times to justify horrific acts of violence and oppression. But this is what he writes in verse 18. He says, You who are servants or slaves, be good servants or slaves to your masters. Not just to good masters, but also to bad ones. What counts is that you put up with it for God's sake when you're treated badly for no good reason. There's no particular virtue in accepting punishment that you well deserve. But if you're treated badly for good behavior and continue in spite of it to be a good servant, that is what counts with God. This is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so you would know that it could be done and also how to do it, step by step. He never did one thing wrong. No one, not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. This letter was written as I said earlier, into a, a particular culture and context. And we live in a different culture and context. So we live in a culture where boys and girls and women today are kidnapped and trafficked for sex and prostitution, pornography, even cheap labor. We live in a nation that participated in the kidnapping and trafficking of over 12 and a half million African slaves over two million of which died while being shipped across the Atlantic Ocean. New World slavery was systematically brutal. It was based on race, and it was for life. The slave's whole person belonged to his master. Slaves could be raped, maimed, or killed at the will of the owner. Peter is writing to Roman slaves whose experience of slavery was very different. Roman slaves were not distinguished by race or speech or clothing. 
They were not segregated from the general population. They, they looked like everybody else. In fact, they made as much or even more money, in many cases, than a free laborer. In many cases, they were better off. They could accrue money to purchase property or even their own freedom. And their slavery was not for life. It was for a limited period of time. And their owners owned only their productivity, their time, their talent, their skills. It, it could not have been more different than American slavery. But still, it was slavery. Slaves could be beaten. They could be treated harshly. They could be even executed for running away. They were still slaves, and the slavery was unjust. It was an unjust system. It was still one human being owning another human being. But slaves, given the cultural context of first century Rome, they had no hope of changing their condition or circumstances. They didn't live in a republic or a democracy where you could petition your representatives and get laws passed, right? And so Peter is trying to answer the question, how do you live within that system? How do you suffer under those conditions? How do you endure injustice if you're a follower of Jesus? And Peter's answer is to live, to look, and to suffer like Jesus. Jesus becomes the example. He's the one who sets the pattern, who shows us how to respond. Jesus, in his day, did not do what messiahs were supposed to do. The earliest followers of Jesus, including Peter, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that great exchange, you know, Peter, who do you say I am? You're the messiah, right? And then Jesus goes on to say, well, the messiah is going to have to suffer and die. And Peter says, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, yeah. Even Peter missed this. They were waiting for Jesus to come and kind of kick Rome's butt. <laughs> they were waiting for Jesus to liberate Israel by the sword. But Jesus instead comes in meekness as a servant. He's rejected by the world. He, he takes on the sin and the evil of the world. He, he absorbs and receives its worst blow. He suffers under our worst violence and evil. He experiences the death, personally experiences the death that our sin causes in this world. He suffers all of it. But then he comes out the other side victorious. He's alive again. That's the story we live in now. Most of us don't like to suffer simple obedience to Jesus, right? When God command, God's commands go against what we naturally want to do, we create new theologies and new interpretations of Scripture to justify what we want to do. But what about when we have to suffer injustice? When we suffer because of the sin and the evil of someone else? When we're harmed by the greed and selfishness and brokenness of a friend? or a family member, or even a stranger? What about when we have to suffer under unjust systems that reinforce racism or economic injustice? Or as we've talked about before, what, what happens when our culture becomes increasingly post-Christian? When systems and governments and laws 
become increasingly hostile to Christian faith. When the culture belittles and rejects biblical principles and values, what do we do then? Peter says, just like Jesus, we entrust our suffering to God. We trust that God will one day judge. He'll one day eradicate evil. Peter says it's not us against them. It's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. We don't have to fight for ourselves. We can wait and hope in God. He will vindicate us one day. He will save us. And just as Jesus did, at, at times, we will suffer under the weight of other people's sin. But when we do, when we, when we entrust ourselves to God, when we choose forgiveness over hate, when we choose kingdom ethics over retaliation, God's resurrection power begins to break through. In 2006, you might remember this story. A gunman barricaded himself inside a one-room Amish schoolhouse near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, He eventually had released the boys from the classroom, but he tied up 10 young girls. And when state troopers surrounded the building, he shot all 10 of them, killing five of them before shooting and killing himself. Terry Roberts tells the story of driving home from work that day and hearing the news reports of the shooting on her radio. What she didn't expect was that when she arrived home, her husband and a state trooper were standing outside. And he told her it was Charlie. Charlie was her son. Her son was the shooter who had killed five young girls and then himself. The Robertses were were devastated, of course. Racked with guilt. How could this have happened? How did our son become this man who did this horrific thing? That week, her husband talked about moving. He said, we could never stay here. This community will turn on us. Our son is a mass murderer. But that week, when they had a private funeral for their son, when they went to bury him at his grave site, six days after the shooting, more than 40 Amish men and women arrived at the cemetery. And they formed a human wall around Terry and her husband to block out the media cameras. They grieved with them, mourned with them, and expressed forgiveness and grace. It later came out that on the day of the killings, the very day of the killings, members of the Amish community took food, a meal, 
to the shooter's widow. Money from funds that had poured into this small Amish community to pay for medical expenses. Some of those funds were diverted by the Amish to the shooter's family to help his widow and her children make ends meet after losing their husband and father. One of the girls who was most severely injured in the shooting was left in a wheelchair with a feeding tube, unable to do much of anything. But Terry, the shooter's mom, began to develop a friendship with this family. And once a week, she'd go over and would bathe the girl, talk with her, brush her hair, spend time with her, When Terry, the mom, underwent treatment for stage four breast cancer, one of the girls who survived, one who had been injured by her son's bullets, helped to clean her home before she returned from the hospital. And that Christmas, while still recovering from cancer, a bus full of Amish children arrived at her home to sing her Christmas carols to cheer her up. people of God suffered greatly. They lost greatly. But they suffered as their Lord and King Jesus did, saying, forgive him, Father. And kingdom power brought redemption where there was tragedy. In our lives, we will face all kinds of pain. Pain from some who are closest to us, who inflict harm, who injure us. We'll experience pain from governments, from laws, from cultural changes that, that threaten us and threaten our faith and our values. We'll even experience small and trivial slights. <laughs> the other morning I was running and this man on a bike cursed me out for not being on the sidewalk. And I was so tempted to curse him back. <laughs> but I want to read, close by reading again what Peter wrote about Jesus. This is the kind of life you've been invited to. The kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong, not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. 
He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. Do you pray with me? Father, you know what it's like to simply be a human being in a fallen world. You lived it out in Jesus. You know that just by breathing and walking this planet, we encounter hurt. For some of us, it was the people who gave us life, who then abused or neglected or abandoned us. For others, it was people who made promises to us to be faithful and committed for life, who broke those promises and left. For others of us, it's, it's the cruelty of friends or neighbors or schoolmates or even family members who mock us for being different. And now in, in this place we live, at times, God, it feels because of our faith, We're seen as bigots or narrow-minded or backwards or superstitious. But none of that is new to you. Jesus, thank you that you showed us a better way to defeat the sword, to defeat evil, defeat injustice you bled and you died you gave yourself for us God help us to live that out when it's hard help us to have the courage and the confidence to live it out to lay our lives down not to be walked over but to serve and to to live lives of selfless beauty and love so that others can be drawn to your beauty and love. Lord, help us to trust you as a righteous judge. Help us to believe that you will vindicate us, that you will save us. God, help us to live a cruciform life in the face of suffering. We love you, Lord. 
we look to you. Jesus, you are so, you are so beautiful. Everything about you. We want to be human beings like you. Make us whole again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask that the prayer teams would take their places and that you guys would stand.